My name is Jared, and I get to launch a brand new summer series called Adventures with God. The first four weeks, we're going to talk about conversations with God, sometimes called prayer. And the next four weeks, we're going to talk about adventures with God in the Word. We often talk about the book, the Bible. And uh, today, I just get to kind of launch this thing, and I've been looking forward to this. And I think you're going to find yourself in this talk today. We Americans are really uh, amazing people. You know that, don't you? We are so amazing that in most surveys, 80% of us are above average. (laughs) Do the math. I know. We are smarter than the average person. Our kids are smarter than average kids. We work better than average employees. We even drive better than average people. 80% of us are above average except when it comes to praying and spirituality. When American Christians are surveyed, do you pray enough? No. Do do you pray well enough? No. And where are you in terms of spirituality relative to others? 80% of us say we are not even average. Now, isn't that interesting? We live in a prevailing culture that suggests that we should support ourselves with a kind of self-esteem that causes us to think we're above average in everything except our relationship and experience with God. Let me ask the question. What's the supporting culture that tells us that we are below average in our spirituality? What's the culture? It's other Christians, right? Yeah, it's us. We've done this to each other. Now, rarely do I find someone that comes and says, you know, looking down the long nose, you're not a spiritual. But what is it about the way we experience life together that causes so many Christians to have faux guilt about how spiritual he is? Well, I hope today in our discovery that you'll just have some kind of some old, crusty, religious guilt kind of fall off of you. I do hope that the Holy Spirit is really good at convicting us about stuff he really wants to work on. He's good at that, isn't he? But let's get rid of some of the mud and crusty religious stuff that maybe we've picked up from some other people as we talk about prayer, having a conversation with God. I think probably everyone in this room agrees about the whom, don't we? A conversation with God would be prayer. But when it comes to the other stuff, we are not at all unanimous. When should I do it? Where should I do it? How should I do it? And all of a sudden, a lot of different voices come out. We want to always start and finish with Jesus Christ, our great role model. Now, let's think about where he prayed. This is pretty funny. He often went, when he was in southern Israel and hanging out in Jerusalem, he often went to a garden. We call it the garden of, would you say it with me if you know it? Gethsemane, yeah. It's a word that simply means olive press. It probably wasn't the tomato and zucchini garden in your backyard. It was a small olive orchard. And Jesus frequently went there. And apparently when he was in Jerusalem, it was his favorite place to pray. Notice these uh, verses from John's gospel and Luke's that tell us about Jesus' practice. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the other side, there was a garden. And he and his disciples went into it. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Luke tells us Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each 
evening, he went out to spend the night on a hill called the Mount of Olives. Apparently, Jesus' favorite place to pray, at least in southern Israel, was out of doors. Where's yours? Here's the funny thing. If Jesus hung out today with some Christian circles, he would be considered a bad Christ follower because he prepared to pray, preferred to pray outside. And they would look at Jesus and they would say, don't you know what Jesus taught? Jesus taught that you're supposed to pray in your closet, your prayer closet. And how can you have a prayer closet outside? And then furthermore, they would say, don't you know that you're supposed to worship God and mostly pray in buildings and do the only kind of prayer that you can in buildings? Ironic, isn't it? That religious Christianity can actually make Jesus a bad Christian. Yeah, that's where that one goes. Always good to come back to Jesus himself instead of the layers that we put on him and discovered in sex. Some of you already are feeling freer because you've discovered that you connect with God better outside than inside. And you have felt less spiritual than others because of that. Today you're getting some freedom. The prevailing metaphor I want you to have with me as we launch into some different pathways of connecting with God well in his beautiful creation of diversity among us is that of David when he was a kid and he took on Goliath, a giant. You remember the story? When he finally talked King Saul into letting him take on Goliath, Saul said, begrudgingly, you can do it, but you're going to have to wear my armor. And that armor perfectly fit Saul. It was custom made for him. He was practiced in it. He was a great warrior in it. But when this kid, David, tried to put on Saul's armor, it weighted him down horribly. He could hardly move. And he said, Saul, I cannot wear your armor. And he took it off and he wore the stuff that God had equipped him to wear. What he was proficient at and good at, he took his slingshot, he took five stones out of the stream. And you know what happened to Goliath? He won the mighty victory in God's name because he was himself not wearing someone else's armor. I hope today that you just hear the clanking of armor falling off from other people and your own shoulders today as you discover the beauty of how God has made you distinctly and how he wants to have you connect with him. And then some disciplined ways that we can try some other people's paths as well. Let me tell you a story. A few years ago, Ann and I were in Monterey, Mexico. We were there for eight days and each morning we hopped on the treadmill of the hotel we were staying in. And we were on the treadmill for a long time because we were in training to run a marathon. And when I'm in training on long runs, that is a long time. We'd also learned that we could read books while we were running. And that book week, I read the book written by Gary Thomas called Sacred Pathways. As he describes different ways that God has created us and how most of us find ourselves best connecting with God, especially in prayer and worship, in different kinds of pathways. And as I read that, it made sense about my life. It made sense about spiritual disciplines. And it made sense about why it's so tough to do church with other people. Because if you do church in a way that really works well for one pathway, one-ninth of everybody there is going to really be happy. And eight-ninths are not going to be so happy. But we can make it worse than we do. We actually create a church potluck of bringing all kinds of different things together and nobody is happy. Understand how messy church is? That's where we'll end in a few minutes. But first of all, let's talk about his pathways. He said that he discovered from scripture and his own study and research that that God has really made us people that tend to primarily connect with him around one or two ways. And when I saw that, it made so much sense about why people often feel so unspiritual 
trying their best to do life another person's way, but not getting the same traction around it as another. I'm interested in how many of you have climbed to the summit of Mount Hood. Hands up, big, bold. There we go. In the back here, over here. It's only people in the back today that have climbed Mount Hood. I don't know. You've got a long way from here to there. Work your way on toward the front and successive services. There you You can make it to the summit too. I am so proud of you. I have no inclination to mountaineer. I've rock climbed and I hike. But technical climbs on top of ice is just not my idea of, I have great admiration for you. You would be the experts, I'm having to guess. But when I look at an image of Mount Hood, I have three assumptions. Number one is, it's not going anywhere fast. Now, I know they call it an active volcano, but I don't believe that. I've been around since the beginning of time, and I've never seen it change. My second assumption is that when people get to the summit, your experience is similar. You are exhilarated, you're exhausted, you're excited, there's a fantastic view, unless, of course, you climbed into a storm. The mountain isn't moving. The summit experience is the same. One of you has a fantastic cell phone ring right now that I'm enjoying more than you are because it's embarrassing to be out of here at church. But there is a third variable. There is a third variable that does change, and that's the route that you've taken. Now, let's imagine, I can't see back there, but let's imagine the mountaineer that's right over here. You have gone up one route, and the one over here has gone up another route, and you're both talking to Ben Farley. Because Ben says, I want to be a mountaineer. And one of you says, oh, you've got to go on this route over here off of the west side. That, that's, the, that's the route that you go. That's how you get to the top. And let me tell you how wonderful it is when you get to the top of the mountain. And then Ben says, oh, I'm excited about it. And then he talks to the, the mountaineer on this side. And she says, oh, you, you don't go up that route. no. No, if you want to get to the top of the mountain, you go this route. And guess what? Both of them are like professionals and they're experts and they show you documentation and data about why their route is right. And it's very confusing. And guess what? Maybe the better route for you with your skill set and ability is actually on the other side of the mountain that they haven't even seen. Ah, this is the cool thing about Jesus. He is the only whole human who ever lived. And so in Christ, we find the whole deal. And we find ourselves in Christ. But the way he has specifically made each of us might call us in his beautiful creation to come to the mountaintop experience of the joy of worship and prayer in his presence by a little different route. Let's take a look quickly at some of those routes today. The first one has to do with the naturalists. They love God out of doors. Any of you with me on that one? Why did God make creation first? He didn't make church buildings first. He made creation first. Doesn't it make sense he would want me to be out there? Naturalist, you're with me on that. You could say, amen. Amen. See, there's quite a few of you, yeah. But when we get to the enthusiasts and I ask them to say amen, they're gonna way out shout you, way, way out shout you, but we're not there yet. Naturalists would much rather pray by a stream or take a walk on a beach or Dennis and some of his friends quadding in the Tillamook Forest or some of you gardening or backpacking near Mount Hood. And you believe, you believe that the Bible is telling the truth when it says we discover God in nature. You love the parables that Jesus taught. 
generally out of doors, if not always, and often drawing from natural creation and scenarios around him and telling those stories. You love reading David the psalmist in Psalm 19 where he says, haven't you looked recently? The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies shout the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Have any of you been there with me out at night looking up at the mountains? Some of you over at uh, Pine Mountain in central Oregon and you look up at the stars, you feel and experience and hear and know God in some profound ways. I get that. Now, some of you would say, well, that was David in the Old Testament. People that were theologically sound like the New Testament writers like Paul, they knew better. Well, you naturalists will love this. The most theological book in the New Testament in Romans, Paul writes this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen and understood from what he has made. Wow, naturalist, you want to get to know God? You go out into his beautiful creation and you find yourself listening and smelling and feeling and talking and hearing. This week, I decided to get out of my well-crafted, several decades long devotional practice that's working very well for me. And if I have anything to say about it, it's the route you should regularly take up Mount Hood. And I decided to toss it away and to practice some of your experiences in life. And so one of the days I went to Noble Woods and Noble Woods uh, Park that's just off of uh, Baseline. And I was there and I sat down and there's a stream and there's, a, there's beautiful uh, foliage. And up toward the, the top of that park, there's these gorgeous fir trees. And I was listening to birds and I was feeling the sun coming through and I was listening to the water trickle. It was fantastic as I just thought about God. And then I find my, found myself thinking with him. And I found myself talking to him. And I found myself listening to him. A conversation with God. I hope each of you received one of the handout surveys. If you didn't, you'll want one. And if you raise your hand right now, ushers are rushing to the front to make sure each of you have one because you're going to love this. I'm not going to make references to the statements, but today as I'm talking, you might want to look at them and give yourself a score. Or many of you, when you uh, go home this afternoon, you'll want to score yourself. And it's just kind of a fun way to see how God might have wired you. You'll notice that it's a Likert scale from one to five, one being I'm not at all like that, and five being I'm very much like that. And at the end, you can kind of total up your score and see how you are. Let's talk about the second group of folks. And you are the sensates. You love God with your senses. You're drawn to the liturgical and the majestic and the grand. Incense and uh, architecture and classical music and formal language just sends your hearts soaring. I don't know what you're doing at Evergreen, but I pray for you because... This is a tough place for you to get through all of this other stuff around here. You love Ezekiel. You get him. I don't get him. You get him. I'm quoting. 
He feels the wind. He sees flashing lightning surrounded by a brilliant light, fantastic creatures, and a stunning throne of pure sapphire. He hears the sound of wings like the roar of rushing water and a loud rumbling. Ezekiel is then asked to eat a scroll that tastes sweet, and he's so overwhelmed that he sits down stunned for seven days. You get that. I do not know what he's talking about. And you get it when Jesus appears to John in the book of Revelation, and his experience is also a very sensate experience. He hears a voice like a loud trumpet, sees hair white like wool, eyes a blazing fire, voice sounding like rushing waters, Jesus' face like the sun shining in all of its brilliance, and John falls down at his feet as though dead. You sensates must fall down a lot. These guys sit down, they fall down. It's a visceral, real experience. Sensates love to worship and love to worship well with sound. And they are very particular about the quality and the quantity of the sound. Trust me on this one, I hear from sensates. Mm. Music style and volume are very important to these people. And when they do stumble into younger Protestant churches like Evergreen, they wonder, do these people actually love God and honor him at all? Pastor leaves his, didn't even get dressed this morning. I mean, let alone in a, oh, that, what's going, because the questions like, how did church taste today is a very important question to a sensate. And if you came today, the only thing you can talk about, I hope about the taste thing is what happens out there in the lobby. But images and pictures and stained glass and symbols and books that I touched or objects that I touched and held and even kissed and the architecture that was there moves me and inspires me. Our Catholic friends may pray well that are sensates with a rosary. Our fundamentalist friends may pray best clutching a leather-bound Bible to their chest. Our evangelical friends might enjoy handling a, a tangible like a carabiner with a little adventure card on it that ushers passed out on the way coming in. Our charismatic friends might feel connecting with God when they're holding a banner that's going to be used in worship because we want to touch it, we want to taste it, we want to feel it. And by the way, when it comes to communion, Eucharist, the Lord's table, Mass, we are very particular. Whether it's grape juice or wine and which kind, bread crackers, how much yeast or none, is very, very important to us, sensate. Do you understand what I'm talking about here? And why are other people so flippant with this thing? That's what we want to know. Yeah. Well, I decided to do a sensate thing this week. It was very, very cool for me. I was thinking about catching a noon mass. I didn't make it, but I did find a rock that was on our window ledge. This rock says Evergreen, July 4th, 2009. It was a commemoration rock that Anne made for our first Sunday here five years and two days ago. This was our anniversary week. So I took this out in part of my devotional life this week, and I worshiped God while carrying this rock. I felt it in my pocket. I felt it when it was cool. It warmed up in the sun that was rising and emerging. I looked at it. I felt the smoothness of it. I actually smelled it. I did put my tongue on it. I tasted it. Wouldn't recommend it necessarily, but you sensates would get that. I, I didn't get that piece. And I, on the back, there's this, all, it's, most of it's smooth, but there's this rough spot here. And I held this rock. And as God and I had a conversation, 
about what it means for me to be following him into my sixth year at Evergreen, I had some profound conversations with God. Some of you this week aren't identifying with sensates at all, and you'll find yourself stepping in a spiritual discipline into the world of sensates, and you too may find yourself moved in some profound ways. Are you a sensate? How about the traditionalists? Oh, this one's fun. They love God through ritual and symbol. Historic dimensions of the faith just feed their soul. Ritual, symbols, sacraments, sacrifice. These are their words. They tend to have a disciplined life of faith. You look at them and their regular routines and you feel less spiritual because of them. They're moved in ritual or liturgical pattern. And symbols like crosses, when they are moved, are very irritating. I've discovered that as a non-traditionalist person and even in a very free Protestant, non-symbol kind of church for many of us. Having at least a cross is very, very important. And if it's not there or if it's covered as it is now or if it's moved temporarily can be deeply offending in a sense of loss. Icons or stained glass or a special verse or sacrifice like is celebrated in Lent is very important. And of course, traditionalists look to Jesus as all of us do as the primary model. He's all of these things. Jesus made it his regular weekly practice to go worship at synagogue. Peter and John, both after Pentecost in the New Testament church, regularly went to times of prayer throughout the day. It was Paul who participated in the regular religious custom at Philippi of going to the riverside to pray on the Sabbath. And he willingly underwent a rite of purification, which included having a special haircut. This guy who absolutely demanded that we believe that we are only accepted by God through faith and his grace was one who engaged in regular traditional practices of faith of those around as well. Now, I thought I was doing pretty well this week because I went back 300 years to Bach. And I took the song, Jesu, Joy of Man's Desiring, which was one of the uh, songs that Ann and I had in our wedding. And I took that song and I sang it and I read it and I meditated on it and I had a fantastic time going way back 300 years into the history of church and connecting with God in ways that my forebears did in Germany 300 years ago. I felt very good about it. Until I was with one of my friends at the 4th of July parade and he was telling me that where they worshiped a couple of weeks ago when they were on vacation, that the song leader got up and said, today... For our first musical selection, we're singing a song that was written 1,400 years ago. But the melody was written just 700 years before. (laughs) I got trumped by the 1,400 years. I trumped. Very important, traditionalists would say, this is not empty religious routine for me. This is entering in to the stability and the goodness of God and the flow of what God has been doing for millennia, including 2,000 years through his church. And I connect with the historicity of what God has done. And I find his stability and his comfort in part because of the regularity of what I'm experiencing in my own spiritual life and discipline. Are you a traditionalist? Hmm. Well, if you're here, you're tortured. I understand that. But at least it can provide some explanation for some of your friends. Are you ready for the next group? These guys are wild. They're the ascetics. 
Yeah, these people love God through solitude and simplicity. They want nothing more than just leave me alone with God in prayer. I want nothing to distract me. No pictures, heaven forbid, no loud music. I don't want icons, candles, stuff. And of course, while John the Baptist comes to mind, Jesus is the greatest example. Jesus, the one who went for 40 days into the wilderness and fasted. Jesus was the one who often went by himself away in solitude to pray. Jesus is the one that assumed that his disciples would follow him in fasting. Jesus, who during the most difficult moments of his life, often left by himself in solitude. The ascetic connects with God around these three big words. Solitude, austerity, and strictness. And they love to participate in acts of devotion that include skipping sleep. They call it watching. And that does not mean you insomniacs that get up in the middle of the night and watch Netflix. That means getting up on purpose in the middle of the night, not even a baby crying, on purpose in the middle of the night to just sit in silence with God. They practice being still and fasting and obeying and working and taking retreats and living simply and enduring hardship. Well, I didn't do all that well on being an aesthetic this week, but I did, you know, come close enough. I mean, this is the beautiful produce uh, section of New Seasons across the parking lot from our house. I will say this, that in this culture where we have so much affluence, it's good for all of us from time to time to do what Daniel lived when he lived in the most affluent society of his generation. And he chose, instead of accessing all the stuff he could have, to limit himself in an area of his life to simplicity. Some of you have participated in what we call a Daniel's fast. It's just eating fruit and vegetables. Anne and I have chosen to have a general lifestyle, which tends to avoid uh, uh, most processed foods and eating stuff that is more whole food kinds of thing. It is an approach to life in the middle of affluence and many options to say, I will limit myself in some areas and I will enter into as worship with God some solitude and some simplicity, the ascetics. Well, they are the polar opposites of you enthusiasts. Enthusiasts. Now, excuse me, activists, activists. Activists love God through confrontation. You know who you are. In fact, you often view church as kind of a necessary evil to come recharge your batteries because it takes you out of the great war against injustice and evil that you are waging in the real world. You're energized with interaction with people and even in conflict. And in the Bible, the activists just burst forth in biblical history in both glory and infamy. It seems like no group can be so right part of the time and so wrong in other times. We think of Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Habakkuk and Peter. Peter used mightily by God to be a founder of the church that ended up in fear and anger, cutting off a soldier's ear. But at least he was acting, which is the activist cry. Let's live God with gusto. And if it needs to be changed, let's change it now. Activists like prayer walking and processions and intercession and interventions. And when they see what's wrong, they change it. And when they encounter resistance, they receive that as a confirmation that they must be on the right track. Their motto is we must change this now. 
And when they are fighting the devil and things go bad in their own life, they say, I must be doing something right. I got the devil's attention. And when they share Jesus and they get persecuted, they come back and they say, glory to God, I'm actually doing the right thing because people are mad at me. We know activists, don't we? And when you come to church, you wonder why we are such wimpy, weak, anemic, apathetic people that just want to hold hands with Jesus. Come on already. Let's go change the world. Well, I didn't write a letter to the editor. I didn't start a procession down Main Street in the, in the 4th of July parade. But I did do some prayer walking in my community this week. And I want you to know that I have some neighbors that are very concerned for me. Because I did it as an activist would. There was nothing meek or mild about it. I went prayer walking with a serious power walk. And I was talking out loud. They thought I was muttering to myself, but it was to the devil and it was to God. And I was prayer walking through my community. I was tearing down strongholds. I was shouting to the north, south, east, and the west. I was asking God to flood his spirit. I prayed for my neighbors. I prayed for the people that are moving into these new apartments. I prayed for the new businesses that are going to go into the lower floor of the building under construction, for the residents that are going to live upstairs over on the dirt pile on the left-hand side. That's going to be construction for an assisted care facility. I prayed for all of those older people that will be moving there. I prayed that God would raise up and move on the hearts of evangelists to come and move in that place and get old people saved before they're going to die and go to hell. I stomped through my community, spitting and praying. I had a wonderful time. And I finished 45 minutes. I was exhausted. (laughs) I don't know how you do it. I do not know how you do it. I just admire you. I commend you. I don't know how you do it. And when you do it, you do it in worship with God. Some of you have friends. They write letters to the editor. You read, oh, she wrote that letter again, and you cringe. She was probably worshiping at her best while she was writing that letter. Moved on by God, writing with God, feeling his presence and his pleasure as he was asking her to be herself in worship. Wow, activists. How about caregivers? These people love God by loving others and serve God by serving others. And I don't get this, but they often claim that they see Jesus most clearly as they are serving the person that needs compassion. And they have great biblical background for this. Jesus is the consummate caregiver. He cared for the sick, the demon-possessed, the lost. He had compassion on the multitudes. He instructed his followers to give to the poor. Caregivers help friends in crisis. They lend money. They, they help someone battling substance abuse. They volunteer to work on the rescue squad. They teach ESL classes. They fix someone's car. They debug someone's computer. They, they make a meal. They provide financial counseling. I wasn't much of a caregiver, so I'm drafting off of Anne this week because I did get to be the delivery boy and the chauffeur on this thing. I, Anne, and the busiest day of her week, she worked about 15 hours that day. About two-thirds of the way through it, she came home for a while. She fixed a fantastic meal. I walked into the house. My mouth started squirting right away. It smelled like Thanksgiving. I thought, this is awesome. Then I discovered it wasn't for me. (laughs) Family in the church, one of the parents is suffering from some very difficult ongoing uh, treatments. And so this this meal was going to their house. And we came in and we provided the meal, spent a little bit of time with them. We went back. Caregivers, caregivers, that, that is the fuel of your life when you are engaged in the act of serving. 
Mother Teresa said it so well and so frequently about her own experience. We've all admired her so much. She said, I see Jesus in the leper. I see Jesus in the poor in the streets of Calcutta. And she does. She did. Caregiving. Well, some of you are caregivers. You're going to find yourself all the way at the other end of the enthusiasts. And because enthusiasts like to dance in their exuberation, I was going to take a selfie of myself dancing. But I didn't catch myself doing that this week. So Marley, you are... Let's give it up for Marley, our resident enthusiast. Yes, you love God through adoration. And every cell of your being needs to express that adoration. Yes, you seek to love God with everything you are. And enthusiasts don't want to just know concepts. You want to experience them and feel them and be moved by them. You are the black diamond alpine skiers of the Christian faith. You love God with gusto. And oh, it ticks you off to come. And people, and here I got Kaylee is clapping and you look around and nobody else is clapping and you just, you want to come up here to Kaylee and say, let me, sweetheart, let me tell you how to clap here. You do it overhand like this. And you do it like, if you're going to clap, you do it with a gusto. And you, you just want to give lessons to all of the lazy people around you that aren't getting into this thing. Because why would you not bring everything you are to worship? You've been there. Oh, and then you're mad and then you don't clap, right? It's, then you get all distracted because worship to God needs to be out there like this for enthusiasts. Did I mention dancing? I didn't catch myself doing that. I know I'm just plugged that German Mennonite thing. I just, it's hard for me. But let me tell you about the enthusiasts. You, you live life with a sense of mystery and expecting the unexpected. So whether traditionalists at Evergreen love the fact that they can usually count on the offering being collected in the last five minutes of the service, you enthusiasts pray the whole service that God would come and break in in a spontaneous way so powerfully that even the traditionalists would forget all about the offering. That's what you hope. You know that God can prophesy in advance, but it's much more fun when he interrupts stuff that we think we've planned with him. Some of you enthusiasts pray that my notes will get blown off of this goofy bistro table and I too will stand like real men of God and say, I prepared 30 hours on this message, but on my way up, God spoke to me and told me just to wing it for a while. That would feel very good to the enthusiasts and we've all been there and I like that too when it really works. Yeah, we want to live God with God in the moment. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Enthusiasts feel that ritual and regularity feels religious and stagnating. And we want to see and feel fresh evidence that God is moving and speaking and directing and interacting with the worshipers and with us. And, and we talk about dreams and listening and journaling and community and persistency and expectancy and prayer. And we worship in celebration and we want it enthusiastic and creative and experienced with other people. Thank you. Don't make me do this by myself. And please, God, come interrupt us with spontaneity. Any of you with me on that? This is when we all say for them, amen. One, two, three. Amen. Oh, that was so wimpy. Oh, man. Well, I won't make you do it because I didn't dance. And unless you see me dancing, I won't make you shout an amen. Let's take a look at the contemplatives. Contemplatives love God through adoration. There's a professor at Regent College in Vancouver 
who is a contemplative, and he says it well. I love to just hold hands with Jesus. And if you're a contemplative, you get it. And if you're not, you're not sure. The contemplatives would say, you're the one out of sync. And they would, it, they would take you to Scripture. They would take you to Psalm 63 where David, the greatest military general of his generation, says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there's no water. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing lips on my mouth will praise you. On my bed I will remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. And the contemplative say, just stop and just let me bask with God. Don't make me do something. Just let me bask in that. Contemplatives don't tend to have long intercession lists, but of course they pray for others. But they would not bring a list to God and do prayer to him. They must come to God and be with him. And out of that being with him, let what he wants me to do with him emerge. This is not my natural stream. Does that surprise any of you? Yeah. But as a spiritual discipline, I entered into it this week, and I encourage you to as well. What I did, I went back to a really, really ancient prayer. It's called the Jesus Prayer, and it's particularly strong in the Orthodox sections of the churches that go back to about the 400s of the Church of Jesus. And the Orthodox Church, the Jesus Prayer, is frequently prayed, and it's repeated. It's Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Would, would you repeat it with me? We drop the sinner there. Just what's on the plaque together. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. This week, I entered into a stream, a practice of 1,600 years, a practice with literally millions of believers around the planet, and I recited the Jesus Prayer. I decided to do that 100 times. And the technique that I used was that I would emphasize one word each time through. So the first time it was, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus... Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I didn't try to think thoughts, but I tried to focus on my practice. And when I began to approach my age out of the 100 that I was going to recite in a row, as I approached my age and I got to my age last year, I brought my life into this story Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when I got to my current age and recited those words, I engaged with them. I was there. I was moved. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, 
have mercy on me, a sinner. Wow. I made my way on through the 100, and I was glad that I didn't make the conviction of one guy who's currently bragging online that he recently recited it 10,000 times in one day. (laughs) By the way, I'm not sure that you should brag after doing that at all, but I did tell my story today. Hmm, contemplatives. I have a friend, uh, pastors one of the mega churches here in the metro area. We meet periodically and talk. He was telling me that he loves to go away on silent retreats to uh, the uh, abbey at Mount Angel. And so I'm a doer kind of a guy, and uh, I'm, I'm a learner kind of a guy. And so I said, so what do you do? And he just kind of looked at me like, what do you mean, what do I do? And I said, what do you do? He said, well, I go and just spend time with God. Really? So what else do you do? Well, no, 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 I go I said, well, do you, do you like have thoughts? Oh, yeah, I have thoughts. Do you talk to anybody? Well, no, it's mostly silent, but I have a spiritual director, and he's always around the ground someplace. If I you know, want to talk to somebody, I go talk to him for a few minutes. Great. I said, well, do you ever like write anything? Oh, yeah, he said, I, I write a lot. I said, well, would you share with me some of that? He says, great, next time, next time we meet, I'll just bring the stuff that I've I'll just bring a copy of it so that you can have it. And the next time we meet, guess what my little friend brought me? Huh? A few miscellaneous thoughts from a contemplative. Yeah, I kid you not. I'm not going to read this thing. I'll gag reading this thing. <laughs> I don't care what God told him up on the top of Mount Abbey. What about, what? I, you what? Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal, folks. Over church history, all that we have written was written by contemplatives because the activists aren't going to write anything. The enthusiasts aren't going to write anything. Marley's not going to write anything for you because if God showed up in a fresh way this week, she hopes he doesn't show up in the same way next week. It wouldn't be as fresh. Nobody's going to write anything but the intellectuals, and they're boring, and the contemplatives that hold hands with Jesus. Oh, here's the deal. I'm doing a caricature. But it is true that across church history that you read about the Desert Fathers, and then you read about Augustine, and then you read about some of the earlier medieval uh, writers, uh, St. Thomas uh, Aquinas, and uh, there's a Teresa of Alatia, and there's uh, St. John of the Cross, and then you come up into, you know, more recent writers of the 1900s, and then there's some 20th century writers, and many of these come through Roman Catholic streams, and then eventually you find some evangelicals, there's Richard Foster, and there's uh, Dallas Willard, and I mention all those names because I've read all these people. I've practiced their pathways. I've done their liturgies. I've done their fasts, extended fasts of 21, 30, and, uh, and, and 40 days. And it's a good thing for us to enter other streams. But I will also tell you that when I read about them fasting and they have these amazing revelations and experiences with God, and will verify, no one in my family asked me to fast. Because when I fast, I'm grumpy and hungry for a long time. And they just pray to God that I'll get done with this crazy thing. Because I don't enter into life with them, but we learn from them as well. Which brings us to the last one, and there are the intellectuals. That sounds pretentious, doesn't it? Any of you want to sign up for that one? It just sounds good, doesn't it? Intellectual. It doesn't mean they're smarter than anybody else. It just means that they start with their head, which really bothers some people. It has to be head first. An intellectual's heart gets moved when her head gets moved first. Worshiping with her mind is what she'll tell you. Didn't Jesus say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, what? Mind and strength. I want to start with right thinking. And I appeal, the intellectual appeals to the New Testament, especially letters like John and Galatians and Jude that make strong cases for right thinking. 
out of which flows right living. Intellectuals remind us of the high calling of loving God with our mind. And they love quoting Solomon from 1 Kings where it says, He showed his love for the Lord as he described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. And he taught about animals and fish and reptiles and men from all over the place came to listen to his wisdom sent by all of the kings of the world who had heard about his wisdom. Solomon worshiped God with his mind. Intellectuals. Find true spiritual connection and communication with God and joy and worship when they study things like church history and systematic theology and biblical theology and ethics and apologetics. And some of them talk about ancient creeds and some of them read contemporary sociology and missiology about what God is doing in the church today. And they talk about it with enthusiasm, if you can imagine that. Yeah. I took a picture of our current home library. Anna and I have had several libraries over the years. And as we downsized, uh, we've had to get rid of lots of books. But this is part of uh, the library that we have currently in our condo. And it fills one end of, uh, of the room that we use as our office. And uh, the good or the bad thing from your point of view is that not only were all those books purchased, but all of them have been read at least a time or two. And in the last several years, we haven't bought very many hard copy books. Most of them are digital books. And so uh, it's not a spiritual discipline for me to read. You understand that? It would be the easiest thing in the world for me to go out and think happy thoughts with God, do my soap and study scripture and make my observations, because that happens to be how I'm naturally wired. But I have to tell you this week that I experienced God in some very fresh, new, wonderful, and beautiful ways by stepping out of the natural stream of how God has made me and into some other streams as well. Maybe you've been stuck in a prayer rut. Maybe you've lost your sense of joy and connection with God. And maybe you felt so unspiritual that you've actually kind of given up on that. I invite you this week to step into the shape that God has made you and to try on some new things for size and to worship him in some ways. Because notice, naturalists really connect with God well when they're out of doors and others when their senses are engaged and some with ritual and symbols and familiarity and others in solitude and simplicity. Some of us when we're battling injustice and evil, others when we're caring for others who hurt and some when we're experiencing celebration with others and some through deep adoration and meditation and others when your mind is fully engaged. So this week, this week, connect with God and do what Jesus said the greatest command is, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. On your way in today, I hope that you received a carabiner and an adventure with God. And this one happens to be for those of you that would like to try either as a family or a group on one side or individually on the other side, what naturalists might find themselves doing. And over the next seven weeks as you come as well, you won't get a new carabiner, but you will get a new adventure card. And we are all going to enjoy adventures with God this summer, stepping into some pathways with some fresh ways to meet with him. Let's pray.